0: Well, please do open up your Bible and we're going to come to look at it now. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word that is written for us. And Lord, we thank you for the book of Philippians. And although written to a, a different congregation many, many years ago, we also recognize this morning that it's written to us and it's written from you. And so, Father, we would pray that this morning as we come to look at your word that you'd speak to us and encourage us and give us a reason for joy this morning. And give us a reason for joy in the coming weeks as well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know if you know this, but it is actually illegal to open a letter addressed to somebody else, even if it comes to your house. Did you know that? So if, you know, the previous owner gets a letter and it comes through your door, it's illegal for you to open it and to read it. It's according to the Postal Service Act, and I don't know the year, but just don't be doing that because you might get in trouble. But this morning, that's exactly what we're going to be doing. We're going to be looking at a letter written to another group of people a long time ago, a letter written to the the people living in Philippi, to the Christians there. And although it's written to them, and although it's written 2,000 years ago, this morning and over the next seven weeks, what I want us to remember is that this letter was not just written to them, but it was written to us, written for us, written for our encouragement, written for our upbuilding, written for for understanding, written so that we can live more wholeheartedly for Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know if you're a letter writer. Some of you maybe are. I am not. I don't write letters. So if you get one at some stage, know you're very privileged, but I doubt you ever will. But you might get an email, but I am not a letter writer. But one of the things that I find really weird whenever I get a letter, in fact, just the way we write letters in the UK, is that we put our name at the end of it. It's really bizarre. So whenever you get a letter, I don't know about you, but I get a letter through the post and I open it up and the first thing I do is I turn over to the other side of the page and I go to the very bottom and I go, okay, I know who this is from. It's strange how we do that, isn't it? I don't know if you ever thought about it. But but back in the ancient world, they had a much better way of starting letters. They started out with their letters with who was sending the letter. And here at the start of Philippians, we see at the very start that this letter was sent by two men who describe themselves as servants. Two men who describe themselves as servants of Jesus Christ. Have a look with me at verse 1. The letter starts, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Now, Bert and Ernie, we know them, don't we? Penn and Teller, we know them. Batman and Robin, we know them. But Paul and Timothy... Well, you may be here this morning, and maybe you've no idea who on earth Paul and Timothy are. If you don't, there's lots the Bible tells us about them, but the thing that I want you to know about them, the thing that is key for this letter of Philippians, is that these were the guys who started the church. Paul and Timothy and Luke and Silas and, and maybe a team of others, one day they went to a city called Philippi. They'd never been there before, they weren't going for a city break with the lads, however, They were going to Philippi as missionaries. God had had called Paul in this dream, this thing called the Macedonian call, and God had called them to go to the region of Macedonia. And so Paul and his team, they went there, and then they went to this city called Philippi. And in Philippi, no one knew about Jesus. And Paul and Timothy, what did they do? Along with this small missionary team, they went and they started telling people about Christ. They started sharing the gospel. They started telling people there, there is a God who loves you, and you don't know him, but you can, and you can know him because he sent his son to reconcile you to himself. And they went around telling people this message. They went and they, they told people about God. And what's amazing is that the people responded to the message. People heard what Paul and Timothy said, and the Lord opened up their hearts. And they believed in Christ and they were saved. Saved from life without God. Saved from eternity without God. Saved from a life of meaninglessness. They believed the message and they were saved. And did you notice the type of people who were saved? Did you notice it whenever Angela read just the the types of different people who who were saved and and belonged to this first church? You had Lydia, who was she? She was a business lady, a dealer in fine cloth. She was affluent. She was, you know, businessly astute. She was an entrepreneur. She was someone high up the social ladder. So you had Lydia and and she was a founding member of this church. And then who else did you have? Well, you had a, a slave girl. This girl who'd been enslaved by a demon and then who'd been enslaved by these men who were exploiting her. And these, this slave girl, everywhere Timothy and Paul went, she followed them around saying, these men know how to be saved. These men know how to be saved. And Paul got so fed up with it. He said, listen, get out of her. And he drove the demon out. And she was saved from the demon and she was saved from her slavery. And she was brought into the church family. So you got Lydia, someone high up the social ladder, then you've got this slave girl who'd be right down at the very bottom of the social ladder. And then do you see who else got saved and was part of the church? You've got this Philippian jailer. This man, he, he works for the government. But it's interesting with him, isn't it? Because he's a survivor of suicide. Whenever he thinks the prisoners are going to escape, he's under so much pressure with his work, so much fear of the Roman government, what they do to him for letting prisoners escape, that he's going to take his own life. And it's only because Paul and Timothy say, listen, don't harm yourself, we're all here. He doesn't. And he puts his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and and he's saved as well. Do you see the types of people in this first church? All sorts of people are in it. Sometimes I really worry about the church, that the people think they can't belong to the church because of where they are in society. Maybe they see themselves as, a, as an outcast or, or someone who doesn't quite fit in and they think, Do you know what, I couldn't possibly come to church and fit in there. Sometimes I really worry that people think they can't come to church because of their past, because of mistakes they've made, because of the life they've lived. And, and they think of church and think, Do you know what, it's full of good people and I I, I wouldn't belong there. But what I love about this church in Philippi is that it's filled with all sorts of people, with all sorts of backgrounds, with all sorts of problems, with all sorts of flaws. You see, that the church really is a perfect place for imperfect people. And here in, in Philippi, that's what you've got. You've got a little church family and it's full of normal people, imperfect people who fit perfectly together. And why do they fit together? They they fit together because they're united in one thing. They're united in their belief in Jesus. Jesus is the thing that gives them unity. They're united by him. Some of them, they, they follow him wholeheartedly, and they're followers of Jesus. Some of them are wanting to know more about Jesus. Some of them want to come and praise Jesus. And they're united in the church by Jesus. And folks, as we sit here this morning, I mean, if you have a look around, We're quite an odd bunch of people to be together, aren't we? I mean, when you look around this morning, there's people who you wouldn't ever really be with outside of church. When you look around here this morning, there's people and their personality, it clashes 100% with your personality, and you're like magnets, you sort of knock heads a bit. And there's some people who you find their mannerisms annoying, and there's some people who just rub you up the wrong way. But, folks, this is what church is. It's imperfect people. People who are different from each other, people who have different political views, people who are from different backgrounds, people who struggle with different things. And the thing that unites the church, the commonality, is Jesus Christ. And this morning, I just want to say that if you're in Maven Hill and, and there's some people here and you, and you don't quite get on with them, well, that's okay. Because you're not called necessarily to be best friends with them, but you're called to be united together like a family because of Christ, and that's what this little church are. They're, they're a bunch of imperfect people with different backgrounds, different stories, and they're united together with Christ. But what's really interesting is how Paul and Timothy, the, the servants of Jesus Christ, what is interesting is how these servants of Jesus Christ describe the Christians in the book of Philippi in, in the Church of Philippi. Do you see how they're described? They're described as saints. These imperfect people are described as saints. Have a look at the second half of verse one. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, he describes this church family, he describes the individuals in it as saints. Now, I don't know about you, but whenever I think of that word saint, I think of the patron saint of Ireland, St. Patrick. Or or I think of saints within the Roman Catholic Church, you know, St. Mother Teresa, St. Francis of Assisi. You get the idea. Whenever I think of saints, I think of these very holy, you know, people who've done great things and have been revered in the Roman Catholic Church. That's what I think of whenever I think of a saint. And what's really interesting is I did a little bit of reading this week to see how you become a saint in the Roman Catholic Church tell you what a lot of hurdles to jump over the first thing you got to be is dead okay and not only just dead you got to be dead for five years you can't be a saint within five years of your death so all of us sitting here well most of you look alive anyway which is good you know we're all alive and so we couldn't be saints if we're in the roman catholic church so you got to be dead five years that's the first thing and then what happens is if you've been dead five years and someone said, you know what, maybe they should be classed as a saint, someone goes and they investigate your life. And you need to be someone whose life was full of what is called heroic virtue. So basically, you have to have lived a life that was just so much better, so much holier, so much more awesome than anybody else. You, you, you need to have been like an absolute hero of the faith to even considered getting a sainthood. So, you know, so Mother Teresa made it because she, she dedicated her life to caring for these poor Indian orphans. Her life was a life of heroic achievement. And so she passed the second hurdle. She'd been dead five years and, and her life was a, a life full of heroic virtue. <coughs> but then the next hurdle, it's, it's really hard to pass. Not only do you have to be dead five years and have a, a heroic life, but you also have to have some miracles verified to you. People go and they they investigate your life and and they they have to be able to say, yes, that person did miracles. And then if you pass all of the tests in the Roman Catholic Church, then you may, just may, get to be a saint. But it's really interesting, isn't it? Because here in Philippians chapter 1, Paul's just talking to normal, imperfect Christians like me and you. He's talking to Christians who are living. He's talking to Christians who are just, you know, normal people who who work jobs. He's talking to normal Christians who, who don't have this heroic life of doing heroic things. They just live their everyday lives, trying their best to live for Jesus Christ. And yet, what does Paul say to them? He says, you're saints. You're saints. And I don't know if you've ever thought about it this morning, but as you sit here this morning, if you're a Christian, if you're someone who has trusted Jesus as the forgiver of your sin and you're living with Jesus as the as the leader of your life, this morning, if you're a Christian here this morning, you're a saint. You can call me Saint Marty if you want, you know. Uh, and I will refer to you as Saint Adam and Saint Simon. <laughs> That'll be don't do that. <laughs> That'll be just so weird if we start actually calling each other that don't do that. But but we could because Paul says that that those of us who are Christians are saints. Okay, Marty, I see he says that, but what on earth does that mean? What does it mean that I'm a saint? What does it mean that you're a saint? With well, that little word saint, it very simply means different, distinct, holy, set apart. And what Paul is saying to these people in front of him, he's writing, he says, listen, you guys are, are the holy ones. You, you, you're people who in this world are distinct and different and set apart. You're different. You're saints. And folks, you may have not really thought about it, but as Christians, so are we. We're different. We're different. How are we different? Well, in some ways, we're just the same. But at the same time as being the same as everybody else, we're different. So let's think about it. We're still totally flawed people, aren't we? No one's going to put their hand up this morning, I hope, and say, well, listen, I'm actually perfect. Mother Teresa, I make her look really bad. No one's going to say that this morning. We're the same as everybody else in that we're completely and totally flawed. But what makes us different is that we're completely and totally forgiven. We're different. The same flawed, different forgiven. We're the same in that we we struggle with the same old habits we've always struggled with. We struggle with the same habits we had before coming to faith. But we're different in that we also have new desires, don't we? New desires to obey God. New desires to to live His way. We still struggle with our old habits. But we've got these new, different, changed desires. We're the same as we were before being Christians. We're, We're stuck, many of us, in our old ways. It's like we're glued into some areas that we struggle with and, and we're stuck in our old ways, but we're learning new ones, aren't we? We're learning the way of Christ. We're learning new ways to live. We're the same person as we were, aren't we? We're, we're the same. We haven't changed in our, in our personality. We're the, still the same person. But we're being more like Jesus, aren't we? We're being changed. We're, we're different every day. We're becoming more like Christ. We've got the same problems. It's annoying, isn't it? Uh, Some of us, I think, hope that we become Christians and all the problems would disappear, but it doesn't work like that. We have the same problems, don't we, as everybody else? But what makes us different is that we have God in the midst of these problems helping us and, and guiding us and leading us and strengthening us. We've got the same temptations as everybody else. But what makes us different is we're filled with the Holy Spirit and we have Him to empower us to say no to sin and to say no to temptation. We're different. We're different. We're saints. Now please don't mishear me. Don't mishear me and think that I'm saying we're better. We're not better than anybody else. Please don't mishear me and and hear me say that we're superior. We're not superior to anybody else. We're the same as everybody else in in so many ways, but we're also different. New desires, new power, new life, new hope. The same, but different. And this morning, that's one of the amazing things about being a Christian that's one of the amazing things about becoming a Christian. God changes us. He makes us different. He, he transforms us. I don't know about you, but I know so many people, and they long to be different. So many people, and, and they long for a change in their life. They, they want a different character. They want a different personality. They want to, to get rid of old habits. They want to change so badly, and they do so many different things to try to change. But nothing really works. But when you become a Christian, when you give your life to Jesus, when you let him take the lead, he changes you. He, he makes you different. And maybe you're here this morning and, and you're not a believer. Maybe you're here this morning and, and you're a church person. Or maybe you're here this morning and you have just happened to find yourself along here. And you long to change. You long to be different. What can I say to you this morning that that when you trust in Christ, when you put your faith in Him, what He does is He changes you from the inside out. He makes you a saint. And He transforms you. And this morning, if you're in need of change in your life, I want to encourage you that the only way for change is to put your trust in Christ. So this morning, you're saints. And who's told you you're saints? Well, the, the servants of God, Paul and Timothy, have said that. But but after writing to the Philippians saying, okay, Philippians, you're saints in Christ. It's great to see. What do they do next? They move on to the sentiments. Uh, I don't know about you, but whenever I write a letter to somebody or an email, I always have to do something at the start, you know, to... You know, d- before I get to the business, you know, I'm writing to to say something. I'm writing to ask them a question, but I always feel the pressure to say something, you know, a little bit sentimental. So, you know, dear such and such, hope you're doing well, um, hope the family is well. Looking forward to seeing you Christmas. When are you going to pay me for the money you owe me? Uh, that's going out to all the men who signed up for the Irish Men's Convention and not paid yet. Just so you know, that email is coming this week. But, but you know, we feel that, don't we? We've got to say some sentimental things before we get to the business. And in the ancient world, it was the same. There there was some sentimental things said at the start of a letter. And here, after saying, you know, to the saints in Philippi, Paul moves on to the sentimental things he wants to say. Uh, And what does he say to them? Well, the first thing he says is that he is so thankful for them. He says, Philippians, I just want you to know, I am so, so, so thankful for you. Have a look at verse 3. Look at what Paul says, and and just listen to the affection in his words. I thank my God every time I remember you. Isn't that lovely? Every every time I think of you, every time you come to my mind, I just thank God for you. And why does he thank God for them? Look at verse 4. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel, from the first day until now. Paul is thankful to these Christians because they have been partners with him in the gospel, he says. Do you remember what Paul's job was? He was a missionary, wasn't he? He went around the whole Roman Empire telling people about Jesus for the first time. And do you know what? that cost money. He'd to get boats, he'd to get accommodation, he'd to, to find food. it cost money to be a missionary. And Paul was good in that sometimes he he made tents and sold them to raise some funds, but a lot of his dependence was upon other churches to help him. And out of all the churches, the Philippians, I think, were the best. Because right from the very first day, right from that first day whenever he left Philippi, right now, 12 years later, they've supported him in his missionary work for 12 years. They've prayed for him. They've sent people along to him with gifts. They've helped him financially with his expenses. From the very first day, these baby Christians, just weeks old, have supported him for 12 years of his missionary work. And he writes to them and he just says, I'm so thankful for you. Thank, you're thankful for your partnership in the gospel from the first day until today. This morning, if you're a Christian, do you have any partners in the gospel? Do you have anyone you you partner with in the gospel? Have you anyone in particular you pray for as they do their missionary work? Have you anyone in particular you give to as they do missionary work? Have you got anyone who you, you maybe write to occasionally and just encourage them in their missionary work? As individual Christians here this morning, have you got partners in the gospel? And I wonder as a church, do we have partners in the gospel? Because I think this is something that we need to think about. We're here in this part of East Belfast and we're trying to be missionaries where we are, aren't we? We're trying to reach people with the gospel. We long to see people come to faith. We, we long to see people become saved and part of our church family. But I think there's another side of this that we need to think through. Who can we get alongside? Who can we pray for? Who can we give to? Who can we encourage? As they may be in other parts of the world, labor for the gospel. But anyway, back to our letters. He's thankful for them. And not only is he thankful for them, but but he loves them. Just look at verse 7. I just love this. I have you in my heart, he writes. Whenever I think of that verse, you know what I think of? I think, you know one of those little chains with the lockets in the picture? And I kind of imagine Paul you know, walking around with this little locket of the Philippian church and that wee locket. It's like he's carrying them around as he carries them about his missionary work. He loves them. He's got them in his heart. And then if you have a look at verses 8 to 11, you'll see that he, he prays for them. And this is my prayer. And then he begins to tell them what, they're pray- what he's praying for. But it's, it's lovely, isn't it? It's this lovely picture. He's thankful for them. He, he loves them, and he prays for them. I wonder what it would be like if we did that with each other. I wonder what our church family would be like if we did that. Imagine every week we came to church, we started to encourage each other. Imagine every week we, we, we came to church or when someone from the church family did something in ministry or, or for them, we thanked them. We said, you know, I'm so thankful for what you do for our church. I'm so thankful for what you've done for me. Imagine we started praying for each other. Wouldn't it be amazing? Imagine what our church family could become. You know I love you, don't you? <laughs> you know I think you're brilliant. You know I'm so encouraged by how you do pray. I'm so encouraged by the welcome you give people. I think you're a brilliant church family. But I would just love it if we could get even closer as a church family. If we could love each other even better than we do now. If we could encourage each other even more than we do now. I would just love it. Because I think it would become an even better place for people to come into. Anyway, Paul, he sent from the servants to the saints, and he, he, he says some sentiments which are very encouraging and very nice at the start of Philippians. But there's one thing in his sentiments, there, there's one little line in his sentiments that I think the Philippians would have just zoned in upon. And when they read this one sentence, I think they would have felt joy. What is it? It's verse 6 in the middle of saying how thankful he is for them for their partnership in the gospel, from the first day until now, he says this, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. He says, Philippians, I love you, I'm thankful for you, and here's what I am confident about you. You see the work that God started in you 12 years ago? I am confident of this, that he who began that work is going to keep it going until the end. Philippians, you've been following Jesus for 12 years. Well, what I want you to know is that I am confident that the God who brought you to faith and has kept you for those 12 years is going to keep you for the next 12, and the 12 after that, and the 12 after that, until the return of Christ. And here's why I think that little line would have given them such joy. Because following Jesus is really hard. Following Jesus is really tough. And I don't know about you, but there are times as a Christian, I wonder if I'm going to be able to keep going. I've watched people seem to just go completely off track. I've watched people fall in love with the world and decide to live for the world instead of Jesus. I've watched people commit catastrophic sin and never really seem to come back. And just being a Christian, living in this world that is so against Christians, sometimes I just wonder, will I be able to keep going to the end? And that's normal of every Christian. I think, unless I'm very strange, but my imagine is that that it's the same for you. My imagine is that that there's sometimes you're wondering, am I going to be able to keep going to the end? And the Philippians, this tiny little church in a, in a part of the world where Christianity wasn't popular and where persecution was going to come in waves in the in the future, my guess is they're wondering to themselves, am I going to be able to keep going? And what does Paul say to them? He says, I'm confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. And what Paul's doing here is he, he, he's, he's putting across a truth that I think we all need to cling to. And the truth is this, is that if God has genuinely begun a work in somebody, That if God has genuinely brought someone to faith in His Son, that if God has genuinely opened up someone's heart to the gospel and they've received it, and it's real and it's genuine and it's a work of God, then what God does is He keeps that person to the end. He keeps them to the very end. They might wander off at times. But if God has been at work, if God has... Genuinely saved, and then what God will do at some point is He will bring them back on to the path He has for them. They might fall into catastrophic sin at times, they might make a complete mess of things, they might make a mess of their marriage, they might make a mess of their life through extreme or catastrophic sin. And they may wonder, how on earth am I going to come back to God? But what God does if he has genuinely been at work in their life is he brings them back to himself and he draws them back to him. And folks, this is what God does. For those who he has genuinely saved, for those who he has opened up their hearts to receive the gospel, for those who are, are genuine Christians, for those who he's been at work in, well, he completes that work. And he'll finish that work. We live in a world full of so many unfinished things. Unfinished books, I have plenty of them. We sit down with young children and there's so many unfinished meals. You go down to to, to different parts of the country and there's unfinished housing estates that died in the boom. But God finishes what he starts. God finishes what he starts. And what I want to say to you, Christian, this morning, if you're struggling just now, or maybe if you're one of these people who thinks ahead to the future and thinking, how am I going to keep going if I get sick or if something happens to my family or, or what if I fall into sin or, or what if I really blow it? And you sit and you think of the future and you worry how you're going to keep going as a Christian. As society comes to hate Christians more, you worry how you're going to keep going. This is how. God has begun to work in you. God has opened up your heart to the gospel. God has made you a saint. God has given you new desires. God has brought you on for many years. And he will keep you to the end. He'll hold you fast. This morning, in the middle of your handout, there's just some lyrics. And uh, I'm really glad that they're printed out separately because it means you can take them home and put them somewhere safe, maybe in your Bible. And folks, what I want you to do is whenever you have those times when you're just wondering how you're going to keep going, whenever you're just panicking, thinking, how, how am I going to keep living for Jesus? I want you to take out this little flyer and I want you to read these words. They're the words of two Northern Irish songwriters, Keith and Kirsten Getty. And it's a hymn and it says this, when I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. That fast is steadfast. When the tempter would prevail in others, whenever I'm tempted and I fall into sin and I think, what am I going to do now? He will hold me fast. We recognize that we could never keep our hold through life's fearful fast, for our love is often cold, but he will hold us fast. And then just that reminder, we're his delight. He'll hold us fast. We're precious in his sight. He'll hold us fast. He'll not let our soul be lost. His promises shall last. We've been bought by him at such a cost. And he will hold us fast. Folks, that's what I want you to remember this morning. That's what I hope will give you joy. Is that if the Lord has begun a good work in you. If he's brought you to faith in his son. If he's been transforming you by the work of his spirit. He will keep you until the day of Christ. And this morning, maybe you're here and you have children. And they're off the path just now. uh, And you're concerned for them. What I want to encourage you with is this. Is that God will hold them fast. If he's been at work in their life. If he's genuinely saved them. He'll bring them back. He'll hold them fast. He'll take them to where he wants them. Let's pray together. Father, you know that at times we find it really hard to live for Jesus. You know, Lord, that sometimes we project our mind into the future and we, we worry about all sorts of things that might damage our faith or, or pull us off track or cause us to doubt. And we worry, Lord, if we're going to be able to keep going. But, Lord, thank you that you will preserve us. Thank you that you have our hand and that you're not letting it go. Thank you that we're like a building project that you won't let stop halfway, but you you will finish the project you've started in each of our lives. Oh, Lord, help us to do our part and to press on and to keep going and to keep fighting the good fight. Help us, Lord, to to live with a determination to follow Christ no matter what may come. But, Lord, give us joy as we are reminded this morning that you have got us, that you're not letting us go, and that you will complete the work you have in our lives. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.